everybody what's going on it's your boy crypto bobby hope you are having a great day great night wherever you are watching or listening into and welcome to another episode of the crypto bobby podcast today i have a special interview for you it is with dan held who is somebody who's been in the crypto bitcoin world for a lot longer than most folks uh And I think his background is very interesting, gives him a really unique perspective in the types of tools that he's built in the cryptocurrency space and the experience he has working outside of that really give him a really interesting lens to view things through. Uh, And I highly enjoy talking to him about Bitcoin, about the Lightning Network, about what that really means for for Bitcoin and for cryptocurrency adoption in the future, as well as about 51% attacks, specifically Ethereum Classic, and how that might affect cryptocurrency exchanges in the future who might lose a lot of money due to that um, and might see some issues with their customers because of that as well. So a lot of good topics were discussed with Dan Held. I will include all of his information, uh, his Twitter handle, his Medium handle as well. So he puts out some fantastic content that I think is definitely worth consuming outside of this interview too. But before we get into the conversation with Dan, want to talk to you about today's sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. A lot of you guys out there know that the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And that's why it's so important to find the right person. But where can you go to actually find that right individual? You can post a job on a job board and hope that you actually find the right person. But if you think about it, how often do you actually hang out on job boards? For me, never, never, ever, ever. Uh, Don't leave finding someone great to chance where you have to post a job to a place where people don't ever go. Post your job to a place where people actually go every day to make connections, grow their career, and discover job opportunities, and that place is LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are actually open to new opportunities. I myself have found job opportunities in the past from LinkedIn. I actually worked at LinkedIn previously, so I've seen the data behind it. I know it's legit. It's a fantastic way to find top quality talent, and that is why a new hire is literally made every 10 seconds around the world utilizing LinkedIn. So hurry to linkedin.com slash Bobby and get $50 off your first job post. That is linkedin.com slash B-O-B-B-Y to get $50 off your first job post. Again, linkedin.com slash B-O-B-B-Y. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's get into that conversation with Dan. Have a special guest for you on the show and on the podcast. Uh, Dan Held, how's it going, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Bobby. Appreciate you taking the time and definitely excited about this conversation. Um, you know, talking a little bit beforehand, I think one of the like underrepresented groups uh, or just uh, kind of mindsets from from my point of view that I've had in the channel is there's been a lot of people in the investment, you know, in the investment space, maybe the journalism space, uh, but not maybe as many kind of core infrastructure builders, especially around Bitcoin. So I'm excited to have you on. Um, But for anybody who isn't familiar with with your background and what you're currently up to, would love just an introduction as far as maybe how you got into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and then uh, what you're currently doing now. Yeah, sounds good. So I started in crypto back in 2012. I had a buddy hand me a Casatius coin <laughs> to, pay, to pay me back for a beer. So he handed me a Casatius coin, the nice shiny gold coins we see in all the articles. Um, and then I started digging a little bit more around it. And I was like, this is really fascinating that these transactions can't be censored by a government, uh, especially around the Silk Road use case. And I thought that was really fascinating. I, I didn't know how it worked, but I knew that 
if it could enable that, it was something important. And so started to dig in, and then I got re uh, I, I got relocated to San Francisco in early 2013, and then I started going to the Bitcoin meetups in January 2013, which at that time is like 15 people. I mean, <laughs> Brian and Fred. I remember when they brought in Olaf, and they're like, "Hey, we hired we hired someone." Like, oh, cool, cool. Something's happening. Like a thousand employees later. Yeah, a thousand employees later. Um, yeah, you had like Trade Hill, which was the first U.S. exchange that almost never, no one's heard about. You know, it's a long time ago. Charlie Lee, uh, Jared, and, and meet, and it was kind of this sort of you know religious event. It's a mm-hmm. we're all kind of and super weird. I mean, Bitcoin wasn't cool in San Francisco. You were, people thought you built software for money launderers and drug dealers. You know, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't hot. Um, then March 2013 happened. Price went to, from $10 to 260 And all of a sudden, you know, VCs are like literally slanging business cards out at a meetup. Um, from there, built a couple early products in the crypto space. My first product, Zero Block, got bought by blockchain.info. I came on board blockchain as the first product manager back in late 2013. Uh, I then worked at ChangeTip after that, which is a micropayments over social media platform. Then I went to Uber, where I was on Rider Growth and Global Data. Uh, I returned to my first love, which is crypto, uh, in December 2017 to go build something called Interchange, which is a portfolio reconciliation and reporting tool. So essentially we help all these crypto traders, all the professional ones, the crypto hedge funds, we help them reconcile all of their trade data. Because as anyone here might've experienced in their tax season, you know, going and filing taxes and making sense of all that is a huge. Yeah, so we do that for the the big uh, trading businesses. Awesome. And there was something that you recently put out and uh, if you're watching on the video right now, you could see Dan's Twitter handle above. Uh, and if you're listening on the podcast, I'll have a link to Dan's Twitter handle there as well. But um, you recently put out a one of the tweet storms uh, on Satoshi's vision uh, and kind of dove into depth on really what that means. Um, would love for you to explain like what the what the, the, the point of the tweet storm was for anybody who hasn't read it, and then we can kind of get into a little bit on it as well. Yeah, so I've been in this space for seven years, um, interacted with some of the core people in the beginning, built some of the earliest products. I've seen users try to use these products. I then worked at one of the biggest tech companies in the world where I saw how people use the products globally in India, in China, in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I, I felt that there's been this big narrative crafted by the payments side of the sort of class, which you could kind of like lump together as the, you know, I pronounce it Bcash crowd. Um, it's the most applicable term for the currency. And, and so, you know, one with the tweet storm, the first sentence highlights the stupidity of even going after what Satoshi's vision is, that it's silly. We are where we are today. It doesn't really matter. But second, I wanted a repudiation of that payments narrative from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's where I spent a lot of time crafting that narrative around why I thought Satoshi built Bitcoin to be a store of value, why he built it as gold 2.0. And so that's what I crafted narrative wise. Sure. And 
Now, with that tweet storm, I take it you're a big fan of Bitcoin Cash, Satoshi's Vision, BTC, ABC, SV. Is that is that kind of the end point of that discussion? I don't believe in scams. <laughs> so I, I think one one like part of the conversation that was was pretty interesting with uh, you know with the tweet storm is. I think a lot of people compare maybe the is obviously a lot of it goes back to the original white paper um, and people take specific aspects of the white paper and point to that to you know, guide either pro I don't necessarily want to say product decisions, but kind of development decisions around Bitcoin um, sure. and then, you know, treat it in many cases with like a religious fervor. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion, I guess, around like some of the maybe um correlation or similarities between like the, the the look at um how people look at that the white paper and also like a lot of the the points of of religion i thought that was kind of one of the one of the unique aspects that was brought up by that tweet storm as well yeah it's, you know it's definitely it's the you know remnant or biblical text it's it's the religious texts that are left over that were left to interpret yeah um yeah this you know forum post as well uh and that's where you know, with my narrative that I crafted, I believe in a holistic perspective, like read the forum posts and the white paper and look at timing and look at look at code architecture. Like how was Bitcoin created? Like why a 21 million hard cap? These are all rational things to do. Sure. You wouldn't selectively just choose if you were a Christian to choose one book out of the Bible and only pay attention to that. You'd look at the entirety of the text. Mm -hmm. So that's where I felt like I, I spent a little bit more time making it more contextual in terms of zooming out and looking at all the other pieces. You know, for example, timing. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it was coincidental that he launched it in the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm like, well, okay, we can certainly say that the decade was random. We can say that the year was random. Mm -hmm. But he published or he registered Bitcoin.org in August 20, uh, 2008. And then he waited months after to launch it. So like he was, I think he was waiting for the peak moment to despair. And we see that. And we see that not only reflected in his timing, um, October 31st was a month and a half after Lehman Brothers, uh, after multi-trillion dollar bailouts. And at the peak moment to despair, if you look at financial crisis, Google search trends, it peaks in October 2008. And then especially the day as well. He definitely chose the day. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can definitively say he chose the day, he chose the hour, the month, probably the year, probably not, you know, so I felt like it was important to highlight that and, and then bring people back to that moment. Mm -hmm. That was a decade ago. So it's, it's hard to remember what that feels like. Was there any rebuttal to the tweet storm that you put out that I'm sure there was certain aspects that you probably expected you know, feedback on from certain parties that you know, maybe take certain you know, aspects of it very literally or use that to push an agenda that they like. But was there any any rebuttals to your commentary on Satoshi's vision that surprised you at all? You know, I was a little disappointed. I thought there was going to be some good pushbacks. I'm certainly a flawed human. I don't make perfect analysis. I'm sure there's a bunch of holes that you could poke in it. I was largely disappointed because 95% of the rebuttals were a copy paste of the white paper with like sections highlighted in red, which I'm like, I look, I, I already know that's what you believe. I'm, I'm giving you the context of everything else uh, to think about this. 
So unfortunately, I didn't I didn't find anything. That's that was ninety five percent of the feedback. Um, you know, I think like other people would reiterate some specific use cases that Satoshi highlighted, like micropayments. Mm -hmm. My tweet storm was already 47 tweets. I wasn't going to go through each individual payment in case <laughs> came up with. Um, but I think those would still be bucketed under my premise that Satoshi was trying to market the product to engineers <laughs> and cyberpunks who are going to help him build it. You know, he can't launch into a tirade on central banking policy and gold. You know, he's going to lose his audience, right? These are, these are people who like to tinker and build things. In fact, that's a core ethos of the cypherpunks is to build and ship. And so he's trying to make use cases or talk about use cases like, hey, you could go do this. Um, he can't be like, oh, it's just this gold 2.0. Yeah. You know, I don't think they're going to, that's really going to resonate with an engineer. So so one point you had just discussed or one kind of term you had talked about was micropayments as a use case. And I think that's something that, oh, it's like the, it's an interesting dichotomy a little bit around the, the store value or the like gold use case and then you know, micropayments. Then there's certain, whether it's Bitcoin Cash that's trying to you know push larger block size and things like that, and then you have a lot of the work being done on the Lightning Network right now, um, a lot of development being done in that area. Um, in your opinion, is like the Lightning Network is that crucial to the future of of Bitcoin? In your opinion, and and if so, wh why do you think so? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know layer two Lightning Tech is a critical component of how Bitcoin scales. Mm -hmm. I don't think scaling is a problem right now, as we see, because a lot of these blocks are, there's empty space. Um, but in the future, building out a robust lightning infrastructure is not only important for speed, but it's important for transaction throughput and privacy. With privacy, you know, with multi, if you have multi-hop transaction, it's like onion routing. Mm -hmm. It's really cool with the idea that layer more privacy focused, uh, fast, instant, and cheap way to send money. Um, it's a really incredible, momentous, exponential leap uh, forward in terms of usability, in terms of, of speed, you know, speed, I would say speed fees and, and other uh, applications that it unlocks really increases the usability of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. you know, I would caveat that with my tweet storm on store of value, store of value and medium of exchange are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just putting on a product manager hat and going, if I had to go sell this product, which is Bitcoin to someone, you know, how do I position it? How do I pitch it? What, what joy does it bring a user? And, you know, I think lightning helps in getting us closer to that. However, no matter how good lightning gets, we will still have the problem of intraday volatility with the price. Sure. And that's where fees are largely immaterial. You know, when you hear a Bcasher talk about fees, it's completely ridiculous because sure you have a one cent fee, but your daily intraday volatility is 10%. And if the transaction was $10, that's a dollar fee. So I would say the volatility plus the transaction fee is the true cost. And so, yeah, I, I think we, we still, even though Lightning will solve a lot of the speed and, and the per fee, like the transaction fee itself, mm -hmm. It's still it's still not completely there yet in terms of like a medium of exchange. Sure. And when you you know look at at store value, maybe not necessarily versus medium of exchange, but do you think one like use case for Bitcoin or one like value proposition for Bitcoin is more important than the other in the near future? Like, do you think 
Bitcoin um, you know, as as a store of value is is maybe more crucial to like accomplish that in greater depth than perhaps you know being highly sought after as a medium of exchange. Yeah, I, I think I think Bitcoin as a store of value is a very important narrative that we should push at this point um, for a lot of reasons. One, it's what it does well right now as a product guy. Store of value has product market fit. And, and that's key because that not only it has product market fit, which means when we introduce people to Bitcoin and we tell them that this is what it's useful for and, and it accomplishes that goal, they're largely satisfied as a user. When we push the payments use case and they session and they try out a payment and it's really terrible, which I've been there for, for like a hundred of these. Yeah. I mean, I was there for a dozen restaurants where Roger, so Roger Veer bought my first app because he was the majority stakeholder of blockchain.info, mm -hmm. largely dictated that acquisition. I was there when he harassed restaurant owners to accept Bitcoin. And we'd come back there two weeks later and the manager wasn't there. And then like they'd, we'd hassle them enough and they'd finally come out with a phone and, and we'd wait for one confirmation. And so look, when, when that's the experience we're trying to show people, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that converts someone to become a Bitcoiner or to become a holder of any crypto asset. In products, we call this the make magic moment. What is the moment where you get, where you go, aha, I get it. I get why this is important. Mm -hmm. With Uber, that's your first ride. With Facebook is when you had your first seven friends added. For Bitcoin, it's the immutability and the very hard to seize uh, component of the currency. And that's the make magic moment. That's where like a Silk Road transactional use case is fantastic because people are willing to put up with all those user experience hurdles to buy drugs. Yeah. Um, there's other great things too with like remittances where people are willing to jump over these bigger hurdles, but largely that use case isn't applicable to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I think you have some unique experience with, and like you said, you've been in the space for, in the Bitcoin crypto world for seven years or so at this point in time, um, but providing the like the infrastructure for a lot of these traders, you have uh, some pretty in-depth knowledge about how exchanges, um, some of the infrastructure and technology on the exchange side works. I think one thing we were talking about a little bit previously um, was around some of the risk of these proof of work coins that are are either on exchanges or being added to exchanges and the risk of a 51% of a attack. And I think one thing you know, most recently that I've spoken about on, on the channel and the podcast before was uh, the Ethereum classic 51% attack, which is um, has been an interesting thing to watch. And there's been a, a number of 51% attacks previously, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the risk, not only for like a, just a user in general, but also for these exchanges that have these proof of work coins, you know, not necessarily a, a Bitcoin or I guess perhaps an Ethereum at this point in time until it moves to proof of stake. But um, some of the smaller ones like Ethereum Classic, the risk that it provides to uh, an exchange when they do list these coins and have them available, and then maybe how that trickles down to a user as well. Yeah, so you know we have great relationships with exchanges. In order to do what we do with our software, we have to connect them directly to pull down our our different traders' uh, information. And so we, you know, we work with them a lot. Um, and I understand why exchanges added so many different crypto assets. It, it makes total sense as a business decision. Um, 
I'm a little worried that the the space as a whole, you know, I'm not going to point out anyone individually. I think it's a more it's more of an aggregate concern. Is you know, and we saw this happen with ETC and Bitcoin Gold and Verge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bitcoin Gold, in particular, is a prime example because Bittrex lost six hundred thousand dollars in that one. So this has happened before. We have precedent. It makes total rational sense why someone would want to fifty-one percent attack a chain if the financial incentive was higher. Yeah. And so it's sort of a logical thing to expect this to happen more frequently. Um, and I hope to see, you know, kind of a rational discussion amongst these participants who are holding crypto assets for customers to start critically thinking about, you know, are you willing to bite a bullet of $10 million loss if, if like Litecoin gets 51% tax? Um, you know, as the market cap drops with all of these cryptos and we're already pretty, you know, I, I'm not sure if we're in the winter yet or not. Um, because I think there's still some like very irrational behavior going on in the market, but I expect prices to go lower and maybe bottom out in 2019. I'm not, I'm not an analyst. I, I don't know, yeah. but if it goes lower and these market caps go lower then the 51% attack cost is cheaper. And so that's where I think we'll see this rise in frequency. And I just hope that either there's enough buffer in terms of, in terms of money in the bank or in terms of, Hey, Maybe we should start critically examining what assets we we list uh, because these could become a liability. Yeah, I think that's a really good point too. And it's almost like, you know, one of the maybe other vulnerabilities besides just like an outright hack uh, that the, you know, the centralized exchanges have to deal with. And I do think too, especially as more, you know, maybe there's more opportunity for shorting these assets. And I don't know the correlation, but I believe, I think it was OKX, release the ability to short ETC maybe three days prior to the actual 51% attack. Right now to, to, you know, if you're going to 51% attack Verge or Bitcoin Gold, yeah, you're gonna screw things up, but at the same point in time, there's not really a fantastic way to perhaps profit off of it um, because there's not really any types of, of liquid short markets available. But as those might become available, there's really some interesting financial incentives and game theory in play that these exchanges are definitely very vulnerable to. Or a, a big double spend would be the other way to do it, yeah. where you like $10 million into an exchange and then you rewrite the chain and put your $10 million somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah, those two, the shorting makes it much easier. Yeah. Because and even if it's perceived that the chain is getting attacked, that could make the price drop. One thing that I thought was was interesting, and and maybe you know, and you probably have a lot better knowledge of this behind the scenes than than I do, but looking at in some respects like how Coinbase dealt with it and how some of the exchanges were able to, it seems like some of the exchanges at least had the the wherewithal and the 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 technical expertise, even if they had it listed, to at least detect that there was something that there was an issue that there was a fifty one percent attack occurring, and they halted that you know, access on their exchange. And then other exchanges had no idea that this was going on or either understaffed or don't have the technical expertise. And then even like the core team of, it seems like some of the exchanges were way ahead of the core team of, of Ethereum Classic in this case, which I thought was interesting. And there was even a little bit of blowback afterwards about Coinbase not informing the Ethereum Classic team that they you know realized this was happening. I thought it was was pretty interesting to watch that develop you know, after the fact. 
in a decentralized network, you know, it's up to each participant to act accordingly with and manage their own risk. And so Coinbase was a shining example of really good risk management. Um, even though it, in the case where if there had been a reorg and that money had been on Coinbase and then reorganized, then they it doesn't matter what they do. Yeah, They, they can't really mitigate that risk. Um, well, you can call deposits and withdrawals, you still can't mitigate the reorg. Um, so they, they, they acted, I thought, very professionally, very sharp, very, very quick. Um, and I really love the synopsis that they provided. Yeah, that um, blog post was great. Yeah, it's really good. You know, maybe I'm not, I'm not as familiar with the conversations that went on after or when they notified who, but I think as a whole, it'd be great if we all communicated more often, especially with things like this. For sure. Um, so you have, I think on Twitter, um, you know, you've like, you have the, the Satoshi's vision, TweetStorm, you, you always put out some great content there. Um, but just generally speaking, like right now, outside of that, like what's your, what's your hottest take in the Bitcoin or crypto world? What do you feel like, um, you know, you're very strongly opinionated on that you know, maybe a lot of people disagree with? Well, you know, I think, uh, I think the exchange counterparty risk is a big one. Mm-hmm. And that's why I keep bringing it up is no one's talking about it. And I'm like, well, either I'm wrong and I'd like to be corrected or, <laughs> and I mean that, you know, I'm, there's a lot of really sharp people in the space. And I think a lot of the conversations happen on Twitter and medium. And, and I think like that rapid iteration and conversation is really cool. Um, so that would be like a big one. You know, I think, uh, so on, on Monday, I'm coming out with a new article called quantum narratives, which is that if you're familiar with Schrodinger's cat, you know, in a, in a quantum state, a particle can exist in multiple states at once, but upon observation, it collapses upon a singular state. So with our narratives, we've had these narratives ebb and flow, you know, dApps, uh, store value, payments, there's a million. And as, as these narratives ebb and flow, you know, this collapsing bear market focuses us to be have a critical observation on these narratives. And so what narratives will survive? Um, And I've got a really cool data visualization at the end of that, that I think people will like. And it looks at the time-lapsed price of the top 10 cryptocurrencies from 2013. So we watch their prices rise and fall over time, which is really fascinating because when we zoom out and look at the big chart, even in log form, which accounts for a lot of the exponential price movement, we don't live through those moments, you know? So mm-hmm. this enables us to live through that, to see, you know, what narrative survived. I, <laughs> a funny one that I used to really like was PrimeCoin. I was gonna say Feathercoin or, <laughs> or, yeah. or PrimeCoin. PrimeCoin was cool because it did something else that was useful, right? Like it found prime numbers, which is kind of silly. It, you know, proof of work already does something immensely useful. But, you know, that was my exploratory stage. And, and so I mined a prime coin. I mined a, mined a whole block, which was cool. Um, but, yeah, I guess my controversial take would be like, you know, we had a Cambrian explosion of narratives, which is great because it enables us to go explore ideas. But I think we're also about to see like an extinction event, too, which is good because that means good ideas survive, just like Amazon survived the, you know, the 2000 uh, financial crisis or like the, the, the uh, you know, like tech stock boom, great things come out of that. And so it's an, I don't think people will like that narrative. Um, 
But I, I, I think we're going to see a lot of those ideas come under critical observation and ultimately kind of collapse. Absolutely. No, it definitely makes a ton of sense. Um, maybe the last thing that we could we could touch on is, is there anything maybe that, you know, we didn't cover today that you wanted to touch on any topics in, um, you know, in the, like crypto ecosystem that, that I didn't ask about? Um, maybe hardware notes. Like uh, so Casa I think and that type of? Yeah, Casa and those guys. You know, even in Silicon Valley, like not a lot of people touch hardware. Mm-hmm. Hardware, hardware is hard, is yeah. the joke. Um, but I think with nodes, they kind of represent something really cool because no hardware nodes are a manifestation of like your participation in the network. Um, and then later, you know, you can kind of attach things to that, like Lightning, uh, like running a Lightning node on top of your hardware node. Um, you can do other things that are with that that kind of like unlock sovereignty or unlock like individual individuality. Um, and I think you know the cypherpunk ethos of the space, or the kind of libertarian or or freedom oriented. You know, I, I would say that's kind of largely what we are is about freedom, yeah, or permissionless innovation. And I think hardware nodes will become a representation of that and enable us to do cooler things. So representation-wise, you come over to your friend's house and there's a really cool, you know, polished aluminum with like wood node. And they're like, what's that? You know, it doesn't look like Alexa. It doesn't look like Google Home. And you can talk about it. It's, it's kind of like your, yeah, it's your like at-home device that represents your individuality of being libertarian and participating in crypto networks. Yeah, I think Casa. I got, I got, I was lucky and got in on like the first batch of the the nodes that they put out and set that up. And that was, um, I have that running. It's, I think it's, it's pretty awesome. And and some of the like the only really negative feedback that that I've seen about that is literally people saying you could you know put the components together for less on your own. And you know that might be true, but there's also a certain you know ease of use element to it that's great. Like if you want to do things on your own, you know you can always you know nobody's nobody's preventing you from doing so. Um, but if you want to, you know, spend a small premium to, or a moderate premium, whatever it might be to have something very easy to use. And like you said, you know, have you know, an opportunity for basically permissionless money, essentially, then I think it's it's pretty incredible. And, and there's a lot of new things too. I forget the other, um, it's the, it's like the, it looks almost like an Xbox one. It's like a miner slash. Um, coin mine. Yeah, yeah, coin mine. And that was that's interesting. The actual mining on that looks like it will never, ever, ever be profitable. But the device looks really cool, and it also has, I think, a you know a Bitcoin node, a Lightning node built into it, and a number of other things. So it's kind of like, like you said, it's you could almost have that next to your TV, like a little 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 showpiece to to show you're a cypherpunk nerd. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm close with Farb, uh, the CEO over there, and uh, you know, I. I'm not sure how he's positioning the product. I think at first he positioned it as like, hey, this is like a research tool because you're right, Bobby, like there's no way you're going to make your money back on this because you have these really, you know, industrial sort of like scale mining operations. But I I told him to position it. I'm like, these are clean coins. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool in a way, you know, like this isn't, this is permissionless coin generation. Yeah. Like, which means you don't have to KYC AML. (laughs) <laughs> you and, buy computer equipment and you mine. It's it's totally true, and I, I forget to what the I think the price point was like seven eight hundred dollars. 
um, on it, if I remember correctly. But when you consider that versus even to like the Casa, uh, the Casa node, I think the Casa node is like three hundred dollars, um, right. and that is maybe seven or eight hundred dollars. And then you have the built-in Bitcoin node, Lightning node. I think there are a couple you could you know uh, do you could participate in a, I think a few different proof of stake networks as well with it like Tezos and a couple others and then mine with it too so I mean everything's up it, it's just cool to see hard like you can pick apart basically every piece of hardware that gets put out um, if you want to look at it with a negative point of view but it's also cool to actually see you know like you said the the level and the the amount of hardware that's being built that will hopefully be more user friendly and actually. You know, maybe allow more more of the average non-technical users to, to get into the space. Yeah, I think a lot of us are getting a little too geeky with it here. And we forget that people exist in the real world. And they want to hold something. <laughs> and so this is a nice bridge between that. And it was kind of like the first way I got into it. I, I touched my first, you know, you know uh, Cassatius coin, and that was the moment that sparked for me. So I, I kind of feel like this, these can be other golden moments as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I could, couldn't agree more, but I really do uh, appreciate you taking the time to join. I think, you know, hearing your, your kind of thought process on that Satoshi's Vision tweet storm and talking a little bit about exchange counterparty risk and Lightning Network. Um, I really enjoyed it. Hope everybody else just enjoyed your general outlook on on Bitcoin and, and this kind of cryptocurrency landscape. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Cheers. it.